Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. We're going to talk about the machine learning version of discipleship. So this should be a very unusual, interesting call. I think it falls under the category of what's called imitation learning, but we'll we'll get into those details shortly. So thank you for coming. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background and uh, you know how you got into the position you're in, you're in right now, and then we'll talk about your current research. Yes, absolutely. So I just wanted to be a computer science major. In the beginning, it was a financial decision for me. Uh, you know, we grew up under communism and, uh, you know, I was very aware that, you know, we didn't have a lot growing up and not because my parents didn't provide, but because just you couldn't buy things. So I've always, you know, wanted to be, you know, not worry about financial, the finan- my financial situation. So computer science seemed like a good fit for me. I always liked math. So I, chose to major in computer science, like the major engineering school. It was part of an engineering institute. And I did my undergraduate there. So I applied to go to graduate school and I got accepted. And so I did my PhD there. My focus was machine learning. And then I met my husband and then we got married. And that was in 2015. And then we had some kids. And then at some point, the university wanted to add machine learning, artificial intelligence emphasis to their computer science program. And they uh, found out that I had a background in machine learning and they decided to hire me. And I've been a very part-time teaching uh, research professor since 2020. Brian, what's your research about currently? Currently, my research is about helping instructors of large introductory computer science classes identify students who need more assistance using machine learning. So I work, so I get all this data from their introductory computer science course. It's about 1,200 students every semester. And then I take the data that they have and I run machine learning models on it to try to identify early in the semester which students are struggling. The instructors, because the class is so big, they can't find these students. It's really difficult to know each student individually and know what their, you know, what their problems are, what their needs are. And so we decided let's just use machine learning for that since machine learning is good at a lot of data and might as well try that, those tools and see how it goes. What do you look for? What kind of parameters that tell you someone's struggling besides? Yeah. So basically with machine learning, you put all the data into a model and then you let it figure it out. So machine learning is very good about finding patterns in the data. You don't really have to direct it very much. You kind of have to just try different things. It's very interesting. And I think that's why a lot of things come out of machine learning because as humans, we don't really see what's in the data, but machine learning these are just very good at using math to find these patterns in the data. So, so far, of course, previous grades are very important in predicting which students are struggling. I found out a lot of things that are not predicting what's, uh, what causes students to struggle. And for example, prior experience, you would think that people who have previous prior experience in computer science are less likely to struggle, but that's not been the case. So that's been a surprising result so far. 
you know, you're looking for factors that would make people successful, or you're looking for factors that are showing someone struggling. I don't understand. It seems like two different things. Right. So with machine learning, um, you're basically saying, I want to predict multiple classes of, let's say, students. So I have a, I would like to predict if they're struggling or if they're going to just fail or if they're going to be successful. So I have three, let's say I have three groups of students. And so the way I train the data is I take data from the past and I look at what is their final grade in the class. And so then I can separate these students into groups. They have good grades, then they're successful. If they have, you know, failing grades, they are, you know, the failing students. But then in the middle, there's this class of students who get Ds or low Cs who maybe could be helped with some interventions. And so the classifier that I built separates these these students into three groups. And then let's look at what variables in the data predict that the students will be struggling. And a lot of these data models, you don't really know what they're doing. So it's very difficult to look at, to tear them apart. So it's, you know, if you open a, the engine, if you open a, you know, if your car is not working and you uh, try to look at what's wrong, everything is kind of organized and you can kind of tell, you know, which parts are not working maybe. I'm not a mechanic, but I'm assuming that's how it works. But with machine learning, it's more like it's going to like a black box and then you put your data in and it comes up with predictions, but it's just kind of really difficult to know what it's doing. And so sometimes you can take some of these parameters and look at... But aren't you trying to train it and do like a weighted model of factors or you're not assigning any weights? You're letting... I mean, you at least have to tell the factors you identify and they don't find the weights, right? Yeah. Or you're giving it nothing, helping it work. Yeah, so those would be a, like a linear model. If you if you build like a like a function, if you say, okay, I am building, I'm taking the data, I'm trying to fit a certain function, then you can say, okay, I'm can I can look at the parameters of that function. But some models are not like that. They're not as you know explain like you can't explain what they're doing. So if you want a model that is clear, and if you want a model that you want to understand, uh, you have to use specific models. So in, like in healthcare, for example, in healthcare, you don't just want to, an accurate model. You want to know why the model is doing what it's doing. And so you're going to choose certain models that are easier to, to take apart and figure out. Some models are not like that. Like neural networks, it's very difficult to know what they're doing. It's kind of like, you know, they have millions of parameters and you know, they're doing their thing and they're doing great, but it's really difficult to, to know why it's working. But it is. It's like an optimal, it optimizes something. And so it does a good job optimizing that thing. But the reason why is very difficult to find. Why wouldn't you run an alternative model where you you put in parameters and see how it, it compares? You can. You can compare multiple models. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Why not do one with the factors that you think would work or not and compare that to what machine learning does? You can. Of course, you can. It also, a lot of these models find the optimal solution. And so maybe the one that you thought about is not optimal. So you can compare it that way, of course. Right. Why run a black box model and then be like, I don't know why it works. It just does. Why not also alternatively run a model, let's say, you know, I don't know, either polynomial linear regression or something with factors that you think may work and compare the two and see. Yeah. Because it may, you know, the machine learning may come close to what you're doing. It may be wildly different. Yeah, maybe slightly better or less predictive, but at least you'll have insight into what's going on. Yep, absolutely. So the way it usually works is you try multiple models, and so the way I've like what I've done my re most recent work where I've tried a linear model, I've tried it's called nearest neighbors and decision tree and support vector machine, so multiple models, and you see how they each do. 
And then if the linear model, if the one that is easy to take apart does well, that's great. And then you can look at it. I mean, you can look at every you know model. You could look at the parameters if you want to. So usually you, you run multiple ones and you try to figure out uh, which one works best. Everyone has finds a certain, assumes something about the data, assumes a certain shape of the data, assumes a certain function in all multidimensional space. And so it, it's possible that if you use a linear model and the relationship is not linear, that's not going to give you a good accuracy, a good predictor, prediction accuracy. You're going to be able to clean the data, take out outliers, see if it's a normal distribution or what kind of distribution, apply the right models, all that. But, you know, I would think that's far from the course with, with what you do, whether it's a machine learning or whether it's your own model. Yes. Right. Yes, you could do you could do your own model and you can do a, another model and you can compare the two. Yeah, absolutely. You could absolutely do that. Well, all right. So you said you found out what didn't work and maybe what works. So what are some specifics of what you found? What are some parameters that, that seem to correlate or not? Yeah. So in this stage of my research, I have taken the, the multiple, let's say five models, and I've tried all of them. And what you do is you look at the accuracy of the model. So you're, let's say that you're training the data on some of the, training the models on some of the data, and then you keep some of the data away from the models, the model doesn't see it, and then you test the model on the unseen data. So you can figure out what the accuracy of the model is. You're predicting the accuracy of the model on unseen data. So you're always interested in how is this model going to do on data for future, from future semesters or data in the future, because you already know what the the results are for the current data, but you have to estimate that future. And the way you do it is you train it on part of the data and you test it on another part of the data. And so I have not taken apart these models. At this point, I've just ran, run the models and I've uh, estimated their accuracy on unseen data. And I've said, okay, these models seem to do better than some models seem to do better than others. There's also little nuances about estimating the models where sometimes accuracy is not the best thing to predict, to estimate. For example, if you have a data set where most of the students are successful and only some of the students are struggling and you train the models on, let's say 90% of the students are successful and 10% of students are, are struggling, the model will just assume that everybody's successful and get a high accuracy of 90%, even though it kind of ignores the minority class. And so that's not good. You have to, to make sure that, especially if you're interested in predicting the minority class, which I am, you kind of have to like give the model a balanced data set. Otherwise, the model is not going to do the work to figure out all the nuances in the two classes or in the three classes that you have. And so right now, I've tried to come up with different measures of how can I tell that this model is actually predicting the class that I'm interested in. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. It just sounds very generic. I don't know what factors you found that work or don't work. I, I just don't understand. Like what? What specifics have come out of this so far? Either, you know, the stuff that doesn't work, like you said, or stuff that does work. What are you seeing? 
Yeah. So again, it's very it's very difficult to answer that question with with machine learning. Again, you have to look under the hood for that, and that's not what the researchers do. So what's what researchers in machine learning are interested in is finding, or you know, some researchers is finding um, finding things that are accurate. So I'm not, for example, Facebook, right? Like take Facebook. I'm I'm gonna just make some assumptions. So Facebook wants to find out which which ads are interesting to me, and they're trying to learn from my data, from how they interact with me, what ads to show me. Okay, nobody's looking under the hood for the Facebook algorithms. All they care about is you know has she clicked on the ads that we showed her, or can we do better at recommending ads to her? So again, um, machine learning is not about primarily about okay, what factors uh, predict right? But but to give it a data set of something, you got to give it some like uh, how many classes they've missed. Did they turn the homework in early or barely on time? So what you're asking, grades, you know, all that stuff. so you're asking me what are the factors I put into the model, right? Yeah, that's probably okay. Yeah. That makes sense. All right, so the the factors that I put into the model are um, some demographic information. And then there's a survey that they receive at the beginning of the semester, and it asks them about their prior experience in computer science. It asks them how difficult they think this class is going to be, just kind of some questions, some introductory questions of their perception of the class, how confident they feel about this class, how confident they feel about computer science in general. And then there's also, they have an auto grader. So it's a software that grades their student submission assignment submission automatically and they you can look at those submissions and you can look at patterns of behavior so to speak in terms of submissions so do they submit early how many submissions do they have things like that and i think this is the most promising it's a very i'm still in the beginning stages of looking at that data set but i think this data set is a very promising data set because it kind of picks apart their be the student's behavior you know as you know with assignments. So how do they submit? What kinds of scores do they get? How many times they submit and things like that? Are they early? Are they late? And so on. And then you can also do their code and, and analyze their code and try to see how do those things, what do those things tell you about if the student needs assistance or not? Right. If they understand. Yeah. That would correlate with the grade. Exactly. You know, they always say, show your work and all that. And then programming, you have to, otherwise the program won't run, which right. is good. But so you have, you put in all these factors and what are you getting out of it? Is it predictive? What are yes. those surprises you're seeing? Like what, what's jumping out at you? Yes, absolutely. So I try to build these models at different times in the semester. My ideal situation would be if I could predict very early which students are struggling. If you predict which students are struggling you know, at the end of the semester, that doesn't help you because many of them have given up at that point and the semester is so busy, you know, it's going to be really difficult to intervene. So I build my model week uh, at the end of week three, at the end of week four, and at the end of week seven. Week seven is kind of the halfway point. And so, of course, the ones that have, are built at the end of week seven are the best ones. And the way I estimate them, I say, okay, out of the students who are struggling, how many does this model predict? And that's called the sensitivity of the model. So I'm not necessarily looking for accuracy. I'm just looking for the people that I'm interested in. How, what percentage of them does my model find? And at the end of week seven, the models that use all the data available by then, they find about 80% of the students who are struggling. So I don't understand. How, how could you say you don't, accuracy is not important? It finds 80%. How do you know that that's accurate? If it's inaccurate and it finds 100%, but it's inaccurate, accurate it's wrong so how could the two be decoupled those two factors it seems like have to go together 
Yeah. So for example, say that the students, again, I'm going to give you an example with, say the students are, 90% of the students are successful and 10% of the students are struggling. Okay. I'm simplifying everything. So a model that says, no matter what you put, what data you put in, I will predict that the student is successful. Okay. This is, this is a terrible model. It's just very simple. Like always say the same thing. It's accurate 90%. So you get 90% accuracy for that model, right? That sounds great, but it's not a good model because it misses all the students who are struggling. So every time a student is struggling, you put it in, the model says, you're going to be successful. This student is going to be successful. You miss them, right? And so accuracy in this case is not what I'm going for. What I'm going for is out of the students that I'm interested in, the minority class, the 10%, out of those students, how many does my model identify struggling? And so the first model that says everybody's going to be successful gets a zero sensitivity on the class that I'm interested in because it misses all the students who are struggling. You just precede the model with what you think the percentage of success is, then, you know, I don't know. It, it just seems like it should come from the running of the model. Right. So it depends on the model. You could probably design a, a new model that is good at that. You must have parameters, like what percentage of your students are unsuccessful right now. You know, that, that you'd start with in the model so you know at least you're close and it can kind of iterate around there. Right. Yes. So you have to be careful. 80% of machine learning is prepping the data. I think that's what you're you're saying. And you're right. You can prep the data in such a way that the model is, is kind of forced to take into consideration the classes that you're interested in and not miss important information. And so that's what I do. I balance the class. So I, I get rid of some of the students who are successful to make it look like there's about the same amount of students who are struggling and students who are successful. And that way the model has to learn the two classes. I'm forcing it to. But what's wrong if the natural percentage is like 75, 25? Why not, you know, from all your experience in class, if you see that at the end of the class, oh, look, uh, you know, 75% of the kids are good, 25% drop out or unsuccessful or fail. Let's start with that because that's what the reality is. The end point is what we're seeing. So why wouldn't it be more accurate to predict around that instead of assuming it's 50-50? It's, it, it would be. I could do it that way. Yes, you could do it that way, but it's uh, there's a famous example of Amazon. It was in the news, and Amazon was using machine learning to uh, predict which which resumes of applicants would be you know desirable. So they were pre-sorting the resumes that they're receiving for applicants for jobs at Amazon using machine learning, and so a lot of them ended up. So the models ended up being biased against the women because only. 20, let's say 25% of the applicants were women and 75% of the applicants were men. And so somehow they didn't, I don't know if they explained that, but that algorithm was if it was seeing a woman or saw, saw women's soccer or women's, you know, whatever on the resume, they would, you know, reject that resume automatically. So they missed a lot of the applicants because of that. Uh, this is because of you have this end balance in the data set and Maybe 2575 is not as bad as 9010, but in general, it's good practice in machine learning to try to balance the data set as much as possible, just so that uh, the machine learning doesn't get biased in some way, like, quote, quote, so to speak, right? Quote, unquote. Yeah, but you can't assume that. I mean, the bias in this one, if you know that that's the case, then yeah, you go back and take out the gender, you know, or the sex of the person as a factor. It's immaterial. But yeah. to force it, into a regime where, you know, that, that's like saying, oh, the, I don't care. These factors are in there. I'm just going to force it to work around it. Assume it's 50-50. Like, why wouldn't you have this iterative or recursive back and forth? 
We put our assumptions in, our parameters, we run the model. It seems to be very accurate. Let's yep. see if there's bias. Is there anything yep. I should take out and own it? I don't understand why I do it this way. It makes doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, you could do it that way. And so sometimes there's biases that you don't know. And so there's instruments that you can use to figure out if there's bias in the data. And there's instruments that you can use to remove the bias in the data. So that's what they would end up doing. They would end up taking out gender, but they might not be enough because, again, in the words of the resume, there could be words like women's soccer team or, you know, women's computer science leader. You know, you can identify bias in, in the data. And there are instruments that you can use, and that's that's really good to do usually. So you could do it that way if you wanted to. But even if you do it that way, you're predicting, if you're predicting a class, for example, struggling students, and a lot of the data that you have is trained on mostly students who are successful, that's going to mess up your results if you're interested in identifying a minority class. Because it's all about statistics. Machine learning is applied statistics. So if you... Um, so, so would you have to run it would you have to have two different machine algorithms then? One for the successful ones, one for the failures? Well, that you had three levels. So do you have to develop a predictive model for all three separately? And maybe they run it like adversarial networks and they work better that way? I don't know. Like, how would you do this? Maybe it's not possible to have one model that would predict well enough because you have three different boards. Right. So that wouldn't really work because then... Um, maybe there's an inherent trade-off. You know, you can't have one model that can predict three cohorts. Maybe you have to have three different ones. Well, they're designed to do that. So algorithms are not designed to just predict one thing. You have to... It, it separates... Uh, it has to separate at least two things. So classifiers, right? This would be... What I'm using is called a classifier. So it splits up the data into two or three or more groups. If you have everybody in the data have the same class, that's not going to build anything because everybody's the same, right? And so you want to have something, basically the model finds like, let's say a boundary between the two classes and then it can say, okay, are is this new person on this side of the boundary or is this person on the other side of the boundary? And then it can figure out which class that person should be classified. That's how they work. That's interesting, do you have to have fuzzy boundaries? Let's say, you know, five different parameters have a range of one to 10. Just making this up. You get someone that's like nine, 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 nine versus someone that's like six, 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 six. When you get data that's very near the boundary, is that harder to accurately model? Yeah. It is or no? Well, it depends on, again, it depends on the algorithm. It depends on the classifier. Technically, there's a boundary. And if you're on one side, you're in. And if you're on the other side, you're you're in the other one. It's like, if you're on one side, you're in one class. And if you're in the other side, you're in a different class. And this boundary is, I have not worked with fuzzy boundaries. So I wouldn't, I, I don't know. Well, maybe it's useful. I mean, you know, if you have a bunch of parameters and the score comes from the, uh, you know, the modeling of like 20 different parameters, maybe that's enough. You might want to also maybe put something into the classifier that says, hey, if any of the parameters are so near the top or the bottom, yep. uh, do something different with this data because maybe that would skew it. Yep. Or maybe someone is like milk toast. All the parameters kind of come in the middle and it's so nebulous that you're not really getting good data either. Right. Yes. And you have to take that into account. So you most of the time that researchers spend is on looking at the data. You know, what does it look like? Does it have noise in it? What, how do we denoise it? How do we, uh, you know, what do we look about outliers? Are there outliers? You have to figure out what you're going to do and then clean it up and then take it from there. So the models can build something that means something. You don't, you don't build models on trash, right? On noise. I'm just saying, what are, what are some of the things you have to do to, you know, you're not massaging the data, but you're cleaning the data. So like, 
removing outliers. Yep. Um, what is considered noise? Like, you know, what are, like, what are the main factors you have to do as a data scientist to clean the data? Let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. So you would, there's just a few standard things that people do. Uh, first, they look at like uh, variables or features that have zero variance. So they're, they don't change. So if everybody's trying to predict, you know, okay, maybe I'll give an example for my data set. So uh, let's say that one of my variables is where people are living. If everybody lives in New Jersey, then they you get rid of that feature because it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. It's not going to help your models. Uh, so you get rid of features that don't change very much, and then you get rid of features that correlate with each other. So what you basically want to do is you want to get rid of redundant data because redundant data, the model is going to try to learn all these different features. And but they're not adding any information. And so you're going to learn best if you have this kind of the, just the information that you need. So you get rid of very low variance features, you get rid of correlated features, you know, you get rid of things that like don't have values like NAs, you know, no, you know, missing values. Uh, you want to get rid of those or you want to replace them with something that makes sense. So this all depends on the data set. Let's say you have 10 parameters and some of, you know, the, the part of the code where they only have eight or nine of the parameters. Can you do an intelligent parameter parameter value substitution? Because you yeah. want to, let's say, you have, again, you have eight out of ten. You want that data, but you're missing two pieces. What do you do so you don't blow up your model? You can fill in the data that's missing in a way. Yes, you can if you can make intelligent decisions, and it's not going to mess up your model. You want to add information that's useful. You don't want to add redundant information. You don't want to add something that's not going to help you. But if you can make an intelligent decision, then the question is, why don't you have that data in the first place, right? So there's all these considerations of like, what is this data set and what did this, this data mean? And that's just really important to figure out before you do machine learning. All right. So are you at the point with the project where you're able to predict which students you're going to do well versus which ones that are going to you know, blow up or quit? Yes. I think so. In, during week seven, I can, with the data from week seven, I can find about 75 to 80% of the students who are are struggling. You know, do they know or are they like uh, unintended guinea pigs? Experiments? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. So all students are either aware or the instructors think that the students are aware that uh, their data is going to be used. And so every time you work with human subjects and you do research on human subjects, you have to write a very detailed protocol on how you're going to handle the research subjects and how are you going to compensate them and are there any risks and things like that. So they're very, it's a very scrutinizing process and you submit this proposal and they come back with comments and you have to make, everything has to make sense and everything has to be, you know, in place. And then we use those protocols to survey the students. We tell them, you know, your data is going to be used for research. Well, you know, these are the risks. So they have to read this long pages of you know, questions and answers. That's how we write it. So it makes it easier to read. So then they know, they know what they're getting themselves into and they have to give consent and they have to say they're over 18 and all that. So that is for the survey when we survey them. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. So they should know, but they, of course, they could skim through and not read it and not be aware of it. So that's not our responsibility. We just want to make sure that they have all the information that they need. Okay. But are you doing interventions now for the ones that, you know, the seven week mark, you know, hey, you're, you're in trouble, son. You know, you better do this, that, the other, otherwise you're going to fail this class. Yeah. So we're not at that point right now. I am working on these models. I think they're very, they can be improved. The instructors probably wouldn't use them right now. So I, I'm still trying to improve these models. What so does that mean? You want to get 90%, 95%? No. Like what is your criteria by which you're successful? 
No, I want to make sure that they're not learning something that that doesn't make sense. I want to make sure that, again, because this is very preliminary, all I've done so far has been to build the models. But I think before we tell the instructors, these are the students that maybe you should be reaching out to, we want to dig a little deeper and, and find out if if these models actually make sense. So what you said in the beginning, something like that, look under the hood, figure out what the parameters are, figure out what these models have learned and make sure that... You know what you could do that would be useful is also a, a help, you know, you don't just give a grade to somebody, but you give them like specifics on which concepts they're not getting. Like my yes. kids, it's really annoying for math. They get a submit using this stupid portal thing and it has its own syntax and all that. You know, that's a side issue, but... You know, it's, the teacher doesn't even have to grade anything. But you know, if they're going to be like that, then they should incorporate like a model like yours that says, all right, Bob, you did this quiz. Yep. You got 80%. According to the machine learning, here's the stuff that you need to work on. These three concepts, it looks like you don't understand. Go back and review them and stuff. You know, that would help a lot in addition to seeing when kids are going to fail. Yep. Um, also, too, even with your model, if you're able then to provide them over the first seven weeks, here are the concepts that you don't seem to get. Yeah. Work on these and prioritize them. The other ones you're good. Not only would it flag them as like successful or failing, but it would help guide them to do the right yeah. thing and help themselves. You know? Absolutely. And so they have assignments that they submit and then the, they get a grade for the assignment, but you could tag the assignment with the concepts, like you're saying, with the concepts that those assignments test. And then you can say, okay, the score for this these concepts is going to be the score that you got on the assignment. So if you got 80%, you got 80% of those concepts, right? And so then you can see, okay, this person's missing certain concepts. So that's how you could do it. And that's, I'm planning to do, incorporate that in the models in some of the news. You know, let's say I'm a teacher again, and I, I have this stuff running. The AI system could give me feedback. Hey, you explained yeah. the concept of uh, reducing fractions and... You did it, and but a lot of the class still doesn't understand it. We're seeing it by the quiz grade. Yeah. So, teacher, make sure you do more with uh, reducing fractions because obviously you didn't communicate it in a way that everyone understood it. Like a teacher that's not going to be a egotistical jerk can mm-hmm. say, "All right," and get feedback from this thing and improve what they're doing. Yes, exactly. But I think it's cool if you really continue fleshing it out. It'd be very useful to the educational system, you know. But there's there's a bunch more to do. But say you're on the path of doing this. Yes, I am very excited about it. It goes, it's going slow because I'm by myself working on it, but it's, I'm very excited about it. Okay. Anything that you want to do with it that I haven't mentioned, like future plans on scaling it out, building it out that, uh, that you think would be useful? Yeah. So right now I'm building it on a computer science one class. I'm hoping to test it on. So the next, the very next stage is testing it on a new semester and see how it does. Because right now I have only data from one semester. And as I explained, I split it up into training and testing. I would like to build it on a semester and then test it on a new semester to see how that goes, like a different cohort. You might want to do this on math because it'll be, it probably will be easier. Like you know, a problem solving this equation and graphing it. You know, there's graphing skills. There's like finding the variables skills. The skills in math seem to be very concrete and very specific. You know, was it a multiplication error was it a you know order of operations error like coding you're getting semantics and i think it'll be harder for you it might be easier for you to first do this with math just i know you're doing what you're doing anyway but it just might be like uh, easier you do this like english class and writing an essay now you're into all this semantic work which are making it even harder 
Yep. Anyway. No, you're right. I wish I was a math major, but I'm not. I love being a computer science major. No, you're right. And and so the next step would be, I wonder if you could do a STEM, like a, a system that just works with STEM. So you put in like, you know, you check a box. It's probably too broad. You'd have yeah. to do it like each class, you know. That's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting that it will not work well, that you'll have a model for computer science and a model for math and a model for chemistry and a model for physics. And they each, you know, work in their own. Really, each class is what you'd have to do and go over the syllabus and be like, what are all the concepts? Outline them that put that into the model because that was what it would score it. You can't even just say science. This yeah. chemistry class, totally different from physics. And even chemistry one versus chemistry two versus organic chemistry, is again totally different. Probably have to make like some simple heuristic where again, it, with the teacher's participation, going over the syllabus, then run the model on it, and then you'd probably get something real good specific yeah. you know, for that class. Yeah, and there's just all kinds of interesting things such as study skills. So they there's a survey that they have that tests their study skills. Are you like a deep thinker? Are you do you study? You know, do you understand deeply the concepts? Or are you kind of a shallow? And so you that predicts a lot of the of your success. And so you maybe you could find these like broader, you know, broader thinking skills that you can test and maybe those predict better than like how your, you know, your individual grasp on individual on individual concepts. So there's all these interesting research questions that, you know, if we had all the time in the world, it'd be wonderful to explore them, to find, to be able to assess these thinking skills and have this general system that says, okay, well, maybe you should work on your critical thinking, or maybe you should work on your computational thinking, or, you know, give them lectures that they can watch to improve those things or, you know, whatever, whatever. So or you do known methods like, oh, again, going back to math, you know, you're not good at these uh, few concepts. Uh, we suggest flashcards yeah. or the multiplication type stuff. We suggest, uh, you know, I don't know, timed uh, spaced repetition learning for this. I mean, yeah. you could do that stuff too. So there's a lot. Absolutely. Yes. So this is research. It's wonderful. It's so much fun. And, you know, let's try things out and see how they go. And yeah. Okay. Very interesting. I guess, you know, you could like secretly kind of like help guide your own kids, you know, and uh, and help them with this once you learn. Yes. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.